The Streams of Winter, Livestream 9, Prologue. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I am Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a single chapter in The Winds of Winter, but a very important one. Prologues are there to set up the books ahead, and so we'll be we will be discussing the Winds prologue today. What do we know about the prologue, and what can we therefore predict? To help me answer these prologue-related questions, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello, hi everyone. Welcome to the Saturday live stream. Excited to be talking about one of my very favorite topics in the upcoming book, The Winds of Winter, that I'm sure you've all heard of. I'm going to be talking about the prologue, the Riverlands, everything and anything that we can think of uh, that might come into play in that chapter. And to help us, uh, we're lucky that we have a friend who also loves to talk about the Riverlands and everything that's going on there. Today, we are happy to welcome Joe Buckley from the Isle of Faces podcast, Whoops, there we go. I'll, thank you, Joe. Very happy to see you here today. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. Honored. Quick reminder, everyone, about spoilers. We do talk about, well, the books, obviously, all the books, sample chapters. And uh, here we'll be talking about some uh, information that George has given us about this one chapter. So this is a little bit different, like Yoke Boy said, than our usual streams. But it's basically spoilers everything. I usually give a kind of disclaimer about the TV show. But uh, this entire storyline was pretty much left out of the TV show. So uh, if we, we were just talking about this before we went live, if we start talking about the TV show, you'll know that we have gone astray. So uh, somebody nudge us <laughs> to get us back on topic because I can't think of a single part of this that was included, really. So anyways, onwards. Why don't we get started talking about the prologue? We'll go over to you, Yoke Boy. Okay, so I've cooked up a few questions about this prologue we're all so excited about. Okay, so going back as far as 2014... George has made comments regarding this prologue. Altogether, what do we know about the prologue from these admissions, Lady Gwyn? Well, these comments were made back in 2014, like you said, at San Diego Comic-Con. George was sitting on a panel, and I gather the subject matter of the panel had something to do about the differences, maybe, or at least the uh, to contextualize this statement, the differences between Game of Thrones, the TV show, and... A Song of Ice and Fire. George said, Jane Westerling is still alive and will be seen in the prologue in The Winds of Winter. But because all of his prologue characters tend to die, the fandom kind of went crazy after he made that statement and everybody started speculating about Jane's imminent death, which led to George qualifying that statement within a couple of days in an interview saying, I didn't say she was the viewpoint character. I said she was in the prologue. Uh, so there you have it. It's the word of the author. And um, pretty much that's what brings us here today. <laughs> so it would seem that George is conveying that Jane will be in the prologue, but the prologue will not be her POV. So at the very least, she's going to be 
a very important part of this prologue, and that tells us a lot about when and where it might take place. For those of us who are somewhat rusty on Jane and the Westerlings, why don't we remind folks at home of her situation in order to provide some kind of framework and context today. So during Feast, Jane sets off on a long journey. Where is she? Where is she going? And how is she going to get there, Lady Gwyn? Uh, she is, or in in Feast, the first time we've seen her uh, since uh, since the Storm of Swords when Rob left her. She is at River Run, where she's been uh, during the uh, siege of River Run up until it being uh, the capitulation of River Run to Jamie Lannister and Feast for Crows. At which point, it's decided that she's going to be sent uh, under guard no less, uh, to Casterly Rock, where she can be the Lannister's guest for a couple of years, after which point she'll be married off to a Westerman, and not just any Westerman. Her mother demands that it must be a lord or lord's heir, as promised by the late Tywin. Okay, and Jane was something of an ordinary girl who found herself at the centre of the storm during the War of the Five Kings, why then does she remain such an important character in spite of her seldom appearances now that this war is effectively over, Joe? Well, it's mainly because the Frey Lannister alliance are they're pretty insecure. They know they've cut some corners, they know they shouldn't really be in the position that they are. So if there's any a slight anything left unchecked, then it could cause big problems even now or down the road, which is what Jane is. Because if she appears with a child, even vaguely in the realm that you could logically say it might be Rob's, then all the River Lords are going to take that as something that they can run with. Like I say, that doesn't have to be right now. It could be in 20 years when the, the child is older, and then they have one of the old guard to rally around if the Freys and Lannisters aren't what they like, which is probable because they're not very nice, aren't they? Because they're Freys and Lannisters. Because they're Freys and they're Lannisters. Right. The Freys and the Lannisters, yes, we'll be getting back to that theme later. So, Jane married into the Starks and really seems to have loved our young wolf, Rob Stark. Yet, members of her family schemed to give the advantage to the Lannisters in the War of the Five Kings. So, what do we know about Jane's current affiliations? Lady Gwyn. Well, what we know, very little we see of her, but quite briefly in Jamie's point of view, is that she still seems pretty loyal to Rob. She shows evidence of having recently been crying. She has a mark on her head, and he, Jamie asks about it, and apparently she's been wearing that crown that Rob gave her, kind of defiantly, uh, until her mother ripped it off her head. So there's that. Uh, when she leaves... River Run, Jamie notes that it appears that she's torn her clothes as a mark of mourning. So all in all, she's still uh, pretty defiant and pretty dedicated to her late husband. Yeah, that relationship with her mother, we don't know what it was really like beforehand, but it's certainly gone downhill since everything with the the Red Wedding has come out because her mother's not exactly coy about her in part in it or what she thinks Jane should be playing and. So Jane knows all about the kind of pregnancy blocking and all of that stuff. So obviously that's going to have a major effect on her and her relationship. So we're yet to see if that can come to a head in this chapter as well. Could well do. 
Okay, and on the subject of her mother, Tywin Lannister helped orchestrate the downfall of Rob Stark, as we all know, culminating in the Red Wedding. And he brokered incentives for the Westerlings to be a part of that downfall. So what deals were made between Jane's family and Tywin? I'll go ahead. Sybil secretly gave Jane a concoction as... Joe said to keep her getting pregnant, keep her from getting pregnant. Numerous offers of lordships were made that would elevate her house. So the Red Wedding was all planned out, but Sybil was seeking to promote her own house from the obscurity it had found itself in. And it is worth remembering, as far as Lannisters go, that later, Jamie Lannister seems rather disgusted by her behaviour. I believe the phrase he uses is scheming bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Seems appropriate. He's not wrong. (laughs) Well, Jamie, a good man, eventually, right? (laughs) Well, good opinions. Maybe. (laughs) It now (laughs) seems that Jane is such a valuable pawn that she travels with a heavily guarded entourage that's overseen by our man Jamie. Why is there a need to guard her with such caution? Could she be carrying Rob's child, Lady Gwyn? Yeah, I mean, Joe definitely alluded to this. It's she's she could be a rallying point for the people of the North and the Riverlands, def- as Rob's widow. But I think more importantly, while it's been six months since she last saw Rob, I mean, you wouldn't expect her to, you know, uh, have his child. Stranger things have happened. So uh, any child she might have during a certain time frame where they could kind of fudge it could technically be claimed as Rob's. But there's also the fact that in spite of that, you know, the, the concoction that her mother was giving her to keep her from getting pregnant and Rob saying as they departed River Run that she had not conceived, uh, we do have to kind of ask the question, could she be pregnant? Because it's definitely possible for a woman to conceal a pregnancy up until, you know, pretty late, the sixth month. That's, you know, conceivable. So what do you guys think? I mean, could she actually be pregnant? Would George go there? I think the the other issue that Jamie's um, and the Lannisters are kind of smart enough to see is it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a child of her body. If you just stick a newborn baby in her arms and say, oh, oh, yeah. it's Rob's, <laughs> then there's no, there's no DNA to no, suspect that we could have an Aegon virus type situation. <laughs> no, 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 this is definitely Rob. Look, he's got brown hair mm-hmm. and everything and all that. And then he was there to argue, and that's enough for the Riverlords, so they just need to make sure if they can just keep her in a room for two years and say no she's been no near no nowhere near anyone and she definitely doesn't have a baby so yeah it could be either way great point joe so jamie does not go with jane and and the entourage in person but obviously it's an important mission and is therefore given to a person in a position of lannister trust and responsibility so i want to know more about this kind of entourage because this is obviously what the focus is going to be, or so we think. So who is in charge of her safety on the journey? And just why were they chosen, Lady Gwyn? 
Well, the person who's in charge of of her safety or her uh, getting to uh, Casterly Rock to the destination is Sir Forley Prester. He's highly trusted member. Uh, it is a Lannister bannerman. He's been around. He's been mentioned uh, many times. He was part of Jamie's original army that uh, fought beneath the Golden Tooth, fought their way into the Riverlands, and then in the first siege of Riverrun, he was the one commander uh, after Jamie was defeated at Whispering Wood. Forley Prester was the one who was able to take a you know, retreat in good order with a couple thousand Lannister soldiers. The rest of them were all falling in the river and <laughs> they were a mess. Uh, Forley Prester is really the real deal. Jamie holds him in very high regard. He is actually some kind of a cousin of, of Jamie. His mother's mother, I believe, was a Prester. So they are cousins. Jamie even considers that uh, he'd make a good hand of the king if Kevin Lannister refuses to take the job when Jamie's thinking about, you know, all the ways he could restructure things back in King's Landing once he gets back there. I want to give a slightly smart aleck answer because you asked who's in charge of Jane's safety on this journey. And um, according to Jamie, of course, it's Forley Prester. But according to Rob Stark, the person in charge of Jane's safety is none other than his great uncle, Brendan Blackfish Tully, who before Rob left for the twins, was created Warden of the South, uh, Warden of the Southern Marches, and charged specifically with Queen Jane's protection. Uh, probably a duty, if I know Blackfish, that he takes very seriously. Wow. So it's worth remembering the Blackfish, but you really should get your head around this Forley Prester character. We're going to have a lot more on him today. So... Edmure Tully is yet another important character in the party. We need a refresher. How was he captured? And what is his value as a hostage, Lady Gwyn? Well, he was captured at the Red Wedding, his wedding, really. Uh, he was actually, he was off consummating his marriage while the while this slaughter ensued. To wit, his wife is now expecting a child. So there, that happened. But uh, he has has no real value as a hostage because no one's going to ransom him. But he's enormously valuable as a captive because his existence kind of allows that challenge to the legitimacy of the new owners of Riverrun that Jamie worries about. As a prisoner, he can be manipulated in a lot of, you know, big and small ways to just continue to not be, make a claim to the, you know, to Riverrun. If he has a daughter by Rosalind Frey, his new bride. They mentioned that she'll be married off to Emmon's son. But of course, if Rosalind gives birth to a boy, then there's that's a whole different issue. And uh, we probably would have to worry about Edmure and the son and, and what that means for their continued existence. But for right now, he's uh, valuable as a prisoner. Okay, so we know that through the course of the story, the Brotherhood Without Banners, BWB, have always posed a threat to Lannister troops in the Riverlands. This goes right back. In this setting, they are the the Lannisters' natural foe, and they haven't given up on their resistance, 
in the area. So do we think the BWB pose a threat, Joe? Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> many, many threats, I think. They've got several different sources of motivation. Uh, it could come from Lady Stoneheart. It can come from themselves because they've been fighting against these guys already for two years-ish. There's people who were living there long before um, the war started and have had their homes and families burnt and taken away from them. And for many of them, they're going to have this sense as well that they don't really know what else to do, what else is left for them. They're kind of on the edge of becoming broken men if they lose these targets. And I think it might actually be a bit of a scary time for them if the war starts winding down, and especially now Beric's gone and they not all of them are with Lady Stoneheart, which I know we're going to talk about later. So... Some of them are going to be a little bit lost and thinking, we need a bit of a score here. We need a big hit. What do we normally do when we need that? Oh, we kill Lannisters. There's a lot of Lannisters. Maybe we can get some of them. And then we get into the additional political motivations of actually taking Edmure and Jane and stuff like Lady Gwyn said. And how are they operating, Lady Gwyn? Because I know you've written about this kind of thing. What What's their technique so far? Well, they're... They have. They seem to have a pretty extensive network of spies. They've got a lot of connections in the Riverlands. They're always talking about very, you know, they have various places where they have um, touch points, maesters, and people like Lady Smallwood and, and stuff like that. Uh, they have uh, also got an established comms system. There are mentions made of uh, signal fires or of fires in the hills encircling River Run, which we take to be signal fires. They have potentially a growing armory because we have Gendry with uh, the smith at, at the forge at the crossroads. Uh, established that he's forging arms and armor. There's a you know a wealth of abandoned arms and armor all around the Riverlands as as we move on from the war, and uh, they, they certainly have the ability to arm themselves and probably a lot of of other people. Uh, so. You know, in terms of what they've been able to do with themselves as an organization, I think they're a pretty well established kind of guerrilla organization right now. And a lot of the people around the Riverlands who are neither Freys nor Lannisters are in on it with them. Well, it seems like the scene could be set for some great conflict in this chapter. And it it would be very exciting to read, I'm sure. And as we touched on, we're repeatedly reminded that the Blackfish is missing and his absence can't be ignored in a Riverlands plot. He is another danger to the Lannisters and is a highly respected military com military commander and mind and someone with total loyalty to the cause of his family. From the presence of his nephew Edmure, to the loss of his niece Catelyn, to the c capitulation of Riverrun, the Blackfish has plenty of reasons to resist and seek revenge upon Lannisters and Freys. So could we see the Blackfish re-emerge in this prologue, Lady Gwyn? Yeah, I mean, considering that he showed absolutely zero inclination to surrender or take down the direwolf banner of House Stark just a day or so before he made his escape from Riverrun. 
Uh, he says to Jamie, you must be blind as well as maimed, sir. Lift your eyes and you'll see that the direwolf still flies above our walls. I highly doubt that he's just going to fade away and, you know, we'll all be sitting here going, whatever happened to Brendan Tully? Well, that did happen, but not in the book. So uh, <laughs> Jamie agrees with us. He says, it says he did not doubt that the blackfish meant to continue the fight. Da, da, da. <laughs> yeah, I certainly hope we see him. I was lucky enough way back when, when I started writing stuff for History of Westeros, the first thing Aziz asked me to do was write about uh, the blackfish. So that he was my favourite. I was very lucky and I lost about a week just thinking about the possibility of this prologue and whether he would wind up with the Brotherhood or appear on his own. Uh, if he does come into the Brotherhood, that would be a mix made in heaven, I think. His... Uh, his skills of knowing the land and uh, knowing how outriders work and how to avoid them or defeat them, how to ambush, that all works brilliantly with the Brotherhood style that we've already seen through um, Aya's eyes. And I think even if he hadn't been officially charged with the duty of protecting Jane, like you mentioned, Lady Gwen, I think he would anyway, because there isn't really a lot left. Uh, and like you say, there's no reason for him to surrender because that's not going to buy anything. They've taken anything already. Um, he's managed to escape, so he's really got this one option, well, two options of going off into the sunset or coming back and doing something. And as you said, I don't think it's going to be the uh, the first option. And it kind of needs to be now if he is going to do something. If we're assuming that this ambush is going to happen um, in the prologue, you can't wait until Edmure's in Castle Rock because he's not going to come back out again if he goes in. So it, it has to be now. And in terms of meeting with the Brotherhood, the one question that's always I've never really got an answer to is what he would do in meeting Lady Stoneheart, what kind of effect that would have on him, because he's not been um he's not been exposed to any of these supernatural parts of the world that others have. We we know a lot of the Brotherhood have already had a big problem with it and some of them have split away. Some of them are used to it from Berwick, and we have people like Lem who are in denial about it anyway, so I don't know if he would be in, in that camp but either way would that make him join up would it repulse him we don't know but I would like to find out definitely and I just want to see him anyway because I love him hmm. um, I, I just want to add that even if let's say Thomas Evans via Edmure conveyed some sort of message to Blackfish before he managed before he made his escape something like your niece lives. She's in control of this outlaw band. You know, you guys got to work together. Nothing anyone could say could ever prepare him for the reality of of what that means or what that looks like. I mean, people just, you know, you can't understand that, I think, until you see it with your own eyes. So I really do think that would be something to see and whether we would get to see that in in this chapter or sometime later uh, as anyone's guess, but uh, that's feel like that would be pretty Martinian to show us that reunion and the, the kind of uh, maybe, you know, the feeling of anticipation. Well, we won't get his pro, we probably wouldn't get his, you know, inner thoughts about it, but just to imagine that he's thinking, Oh, I'm going to see little cat again, which is what he always called her. And then to see what she's become, I mean, the horror. <laughs> just Yeah, just the physical sight alone without actually seeing what it means. That's the stuff of horror already. And then 
trying to wrap your head obviously around <laughs> it's not really uh, what you're used to. That is so interesting. I haven't given that a lot of, a lot of thought before, but wow, that would be a, a family reunion I'd like to see. <laughs> okay, so if the fact that Jane is confirmed to be in this prologue leads us to believe that there will be scenes of conflict between this Lannister contingent and an aggressor, patron B-Word wonders whereabouts the prologue will pick up. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, I think it'll be, you know, during their their during their journey, maybe as they begin to cross the mountains, because there are mountains in between the Riverlands and the Westerlands that they're going to have to cross. I kind of have this image of the party struggling through the mountain pass or something, and maybe, you know, the wagon wheel breaks or something, you know, just the usual sort of thing that's going to happen while you're uh, undergoing a journey like that. And uh, then all of a sudden they find themselves surrounded and they're being attacked, maybe from the from in, in front and behind and the sides. And we'll talk a little bit about how that could be, but just I think it'll be something completely unexpected that comes upon them. And what kind of ballpark figure for... The Presta party is there. You know, how many kind of troops do, you, do we think is in this procession headed headed away? And what vulnerabilities might they have? What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, I think we know because Jamie, first they were going to be 100, then Jamie doubles, doubles it and then uh, doubles it again. So I, we pretty much can assume that there's about 400 men under the command of Frohly Prester. And uh, their vulnerabilities are that, what I mentioned, they have to cross these mountains. And the, the route, generally speaking, would be through the pass at the Golden Tooth. And that part of it is going to be a bottleneck. And like, like any mountain pass, uh, it's going to present them with some uh, extreme vulnerabilities, I think. Yeah, I've always had it in my mind. For some reason, I remembered it that it was a a, a company mainly made up of archers, but that, that's wrong. I don't know where I got that from. But they do have specifically 10 uh, longbowmen watching Edmure and Jane in case things goes wrong. But other than that, they're pretty much... I don't. I can't remember how many are horse, but I know they have like a good number of knights, like 40 knights. So they're, they are strong, but they are susceptible, as Lady Gwen says. Um, they would be susceptible to a ranged attack, mainly like in a bottleneck or a wood. There's no woods on the map, but we don't know. Not everything is detailed on the maps as we have them. So they could easily they could easily be both a wooded mountain pass. That would be bad for them. And like I said earlier, the Blackfish, he knows how to use land brilliantly. We've not really seen anyone do it better than him. So, And he has been this way before. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit there, but he has been this way. He knows how to... Um, use certain advantages and we've also seen the brotherhood use archers i store them with their fire arrows you send them in you set all the horse lines off everything's in chaos and then you go in and uh, kind of take advantage of that so i think we could definitely see some kind of either a reimagining of that or some kind of perfect uh, mix between the blackfish and the brotherhood that's what i would vote for <laughs> wow did i say it sounds exciting yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, many think that it's going to be the BWB attacking. How big would a B 
WB contingent be? And how exactly might they attack? I was just going to answer the latter question because I was thinking about the Chet prologue, which we analysed in an episode not so long ago. And there's a plan, at least. They don't go through with it. There's a plan to attack the wildling procession that's headed to the wall. So is information about this pertinent? And is there going to be a kind of parallel? And is there going to be a similar plan of attack that the BWB could employ? I'll give you the quote and then you can make your own minds up. Their line of march will stretch for many miles. We shall fall on them in several places at once and make them swear we are 3,000, not 300. We'll hit hard and be away before their horsemen can form up to face us, Thorin Smallwood said. If they pursue, we'll lead them a merry chase, then wheel and hit again farther down the column. We'll burn their wagons, scatter their herds, and slay as many as we can. Mance Raider himself, if we find him. If they break and return to their hovels, we've won. If not, we'll hurry them all the way to the wall and see to it that they leave a trail of corpses to mark their progress. So, could could this be kind of information that's pertinent to the another prologue because that is from the Chet prologue and that was Old Bear talking in the beginning and Joe do you have something to add yeah I, when I saw that you put this in the notes that, that blew my mind that was a great catch and actually I, I read for your quote and I think the wording is almost the same when they say Mary Chase I think in a Catelyn Storm chapter when Brynden is kind of relaying what their plan was if Edmure hadn't stopped Tywin at the um, at the Stone Mill. They talked also about a merry chase once they were in the rest uh, in the Westerland, sorry, of doing basically the same kind of combat of attacking a, a train. Uh, Tywin's army is obviously a lot bigger than what we're dealing with here, but it would be the same concept. So that's a kind of unused plan that they didn't get to do that Brynden would have in his mind. Now they said that was by the coast that that patch of land they found. So obviously that's not going to be in use here. But like I say, Brennan has this uh, concept in mind that he could apply here. So yeah, they might be employing similar tactics. I'll take the because um, I think at the beginning of the question, you want you wanted to know how big or how many men could be, or men, men and women, because the Brotherhood seemed to have uh, have both in their number. So you know, how big could this group be that's attacking? Now, uh, it's never really very clear how many are in the Brotherhood. I know early on they talk about hundreds or, or whatever. We don't know how many are still there. there. There's The core group seems to now be a couple to a few dozen, plus whatever supporters they pull in from the small folk. Uh, but we should also remember the remnants of the war. You've got the River Run garrison who are unarmed, but we've talked about how how the Brotherhood has the ability to arm people. We have uh, 600 men who were left at the Ford uh, on the way to the Twins by by Bruce Bolton. They are under the command of Kyle Condon and Ronald Stout. Spearmen from the Rills, the Mountains and the White Knife, 100 Hornwood Longbows, some Freeriders and Hedge Knights, and a strong force of Stout and Kerwin men to stiffen them. The people that Bruce probably felt would be tend to be loyal to Rob 
as they were uh, Kerwin's stouts. So they were left behind with the expectation that they were probably a sacrifice, but we never hear about them again. Some or all of them could have survived. And then you've got other other groups, possible Red Wedding survivors, survivors of Gregor's ambush of Bruce Bolton's rear guard that you hear about, uh, men who went with Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover. They took a, a contingent of men with them. What They went into the neck, but what happened to them? We don't really know what what's happened with them since that point. And then, of course, you got the Riverlands is full of people who didn't accompany Rob to the Red Wedding. Rob brought only his northern troops with him, leaving the River Lords with their forces intact. These men have all nominally at this point bent the knee, but you know we think there's a very good chance that any number of them could still be loyal to Stark and Tully. So as far as numbers go, who knows? As far as I see it, sky's the limit, because <laughs> pretty much everyone in the Riverlands who isn't a Frey or a Lannister could be in on this. <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested. It's one of the probably one of my top five questions about Winds is the what the Brotherhood actually looks like now post Beric into the uh, Stoneheart era, because we, we really don't know at all. We get a real quick glimpse in Brienne's. Uh, final feast chapter and uh, so we we know some of them are with Stoneheart but there's plenty who are missing that we've seen before and we don't know if they have they've just been sent somewhere else on a mission if they've left because they don't want to be part of this creepy dead woman's thing um we don't know if the their, that abandonment is them just quitting entirely or are they just sticking to what they believe Beric's original mission was and have kind of gone rogue and set off a, a completely different section so we don't know who is where because we don't know where Greenbeard is and he's uh, kind of noted as a possible leader I think by Aya in in her chapters the Mad Huntsman they were both sent south of the Manda but they easily could have got back up now and he really hates Lannisters so he could be quite in on this one is Edric Dane going to turn up I, I would say no but like you say Lady Gwyn it could be anyone that's how good the phrase and Lannisters are at pissing everyone off is that anyone could be their enemy now Oh dear, they've upset too many people, finally. <laughs> so, I was wondering, we're talking about the BWDB and we're almost assuming that it's them that's going to come into conflict with the Lannisters. But isn't it possible that this attack might not involve the BWB and instead it could be Blackfish with the River Run garrison? Why don't you explain this, Lady Gwynne? Well, you know, we have to, you know, we think about, we have to think about all possibilities, right? And it is possible because even though there was an opportunity for Thomas Evans to speak to Edmure, who then went into River Run and spoke to presumably his uncle before he escaped, and we think that could be a way for Brotherhood sort of messages to have flowed between this whole group of people, we also have to acknowledge the possibility that that didn't happen or that Blackfish didn't want to hear it and maybe had his own plan in mind. And maybe his escape was just simply coordinated with the members of the garrison who were his soldiers, men that he would trust, uh, that that Edmure had uh, assurances from Jamie that they would be released. Of course, in that case, uh, the problem of arms and armor would would be what the issue was. But let's let's think about Brendan Tully. He was apparently the mastermind behind the great Stark-Tully victory at Oxcross, which involved 
circumventing the golden tooth, which is that pass that we we keep talking about uh, via a secret path, which was discovered by Grey Wind. So there he is. He's got his garrison now at large and with the problem of arms and armor, of course. So we could think of ways around that, I guess, if, if we must. But what if, you know, this group somehow gets together and they're going to make the attempt to free Admir and Jane? You mentioned, I mentioned earlier that he's been charged with her safety. But even if not, if if he hadn't been, Joe said he would probably still be trying to save these people. Remember the Tully words, family, duty, honor. Blackfish would be fulfilling his duty as warden of the Southern Marches and protector of the Queen by rescuing his surviving family and annihilating the Lannister host under Forley's command. So standing and fighting, I think, is probably the most honorable and very characteristic action. So I think I hit all the family duty honor there, right? So also we talked, we've talked a lot about how how great he is at using the the land as you know in in his favor. So being familiar with the lay of the land, he could easily take the goat track and block the further end of the pass at the golden tooth. You've got a natural choke point there that's easily encircled with proper planning and you wouldn't actually need too great of a force to do that you know a few few to go ahead and cause some sort of barrier that would stop the party from going forward another party to come up around the back to stop them from going back it actually is a lot like whispering wood now that i'm talking about it because then you have the the ones on the sides that would come down so a little bit of a different landscape but a very similar tactic it would work and that it's it would definitely be put these 400 men in in a place where they had no retreat and probably very little cover so obviously the worry would be about the prisoners being executed because uh, Jamie was very clear about the fact that you know if either of them put a toe out of line they're to be they're to be shot because he doesn't want to see either of them uh, being used as that rallying point Jamie say what you will he is nobody's fool so you know if this rescue was going to be executed successfully it would have to be pretty surgical but you'd have to assume that if there was some sort of plan like this Edmure would know about it because it would have been made before he left right so one other detail about the golden tooth house lefford which is the house who who um resides at the fortress of the golden tooth is now ruled by by a widow the widow of lord lefford who's somebody who all these lannisters that drowned because they insisted on wearing armor when they were fighting around water so he's one of the ones he drowned at the at the battle of the fords which was Edmure's great victory and just to point out that forley prester has multiple associations with this pass at the golden tooth from the very beginning he was part of the army that was that was stationed there that fought their way into the riverlands he retreated through there after uh, the after the battle of the camps and you know it would be totally within the keeping of the story to see him up there again wouldn't it it would be and what themes do we think could be explored if this attack happens and how would this set up 
the the whole book of the Winds of Winter. Patrons Christine and Quarren Halfhand wonder what the prologue will tease about the book ahead. If we open the Winds of Winter and it begins like this, what do you think we're going to expect from the the rest of the book, Joe? Well, how long have you got? Really, this could be a, this could be the whole episode right here, couldn't it? This is a a lot of things have got to fit into wins, obviously, thematically and, and plot wise. And I think the prologue is going to be a big part of that. I think George really is going to aim for two statements with this opening chapter that we've been waiting for for so long. We know he's already tipped wins as the everything gets worse book. The the you think we've had it bad so far, you've seen nothing yet. I'm going to be much much worse. Watch this type thing. And he's going to set that tone right here in the prologue, I believe. I think it's going to be grim. I think it's going to be morally very dark. And it's, it's really going to be like, a, a, well, what are we actually holding in our hands? Firstly, we're happy we've got it, but this is actually quite quite heavy already. Um, and I also, I don't think George ever panders to the audience or, or anything like that. But I do think the fact that we've had a probably 10-year wait um wins isn't going to come out and then put its punches we're kind of really hit the ground running and like i say set the tone straight off and personally i think his second point more to the the plot of the of the prologue in terms of theme is it's going to be that the magical element again i'm jumping forward a little bit here without saying the magical w word um the magical element is going to no longer be on the periphery because every other prologue we've had has been on the edge down in Old Town up above the wall out on Dragonstone where this is one is just leaving the centre now and this is going to be a big thing that no one's going to be able to hide from. This is going to be big news all over the Riverlands and all over the Westeros of possibly captives escaping or dying or whatever it is and a big 400-strong company something happening to them so this isn't going to be hidden above the wall or anything like that and i think george is really telling us that there's no hiding places anymore this is going to be affecting everyone the whole place is in trouble basically and he can come for anyone with his wolves or his dragons or his others and this is what we can expect from wins but for the for the overall theme i think wins itself is going to mostly focus on vengeance and the bad consequences of it we've had that already all all through the first five books but i think we're really going to focus on how bad getting vengeance can be we've only really seen the strive to get it now i think we're going to actually see people receiving it and it not going well uh i think well-laid plans going wrong is going to be a big part of wins and i think that's going to be here in this prologue and more violence and violence only be getting more violence which again we've especially seen during feast and the Riverlands, but I think we're going to see that in Captured here as well. And yeah, like I said, because this is this is just going to go so wrong, we can assume someone is probably going to be killed when they're not supposed to, at least the POV we can assume. And uh, Again, I think we'll see the Stoneheart's vengeance actually looks very different in reality to what we might think on our heads. We think, oh yeah, brilliant, yeah, get the phrase, get the Lannisters, they're bad, but now we're actually going to see it in reality and... Oh, it's actually going to be. Oh, I probably shouldn't have wished for this. I need to go away and think about myself, what kind of person I am, because that's what George is quite good at doing. Yeah, I, I fail to see that George would give a positive message about revenge. Ultimately, he might tempt us. He might make us feel like it's a good ride, but ultimately, we're going to get a slap in the face for wanting blood. Right? He's that kind of guy. So. 
Moving on, while we know that Jane Westerling will be in the prologue, Georgia stated that she won't be the POV, as we discussed. So why don't we go through the likely candidates for the POV status, remembering that prologues must function as short stories, and the choice of POV really does colour the events that we witness because it's through somebody's eyes, we're likely to learn much and more about the inner world of this POV. And so it's a huge call from George to bestow this kind of honour onto a certain character. So who will that character be? We're going to go through some of the likely people and I'll kind of give the lowdown and you two can kind of give the pros and cons. So I, I, want, I want to start with a theory that kind of emerged a, a few years ago. And this is the King's Justice, Ilin Payne. He's an executioner who has been mute since the Mad King took his tongue, normally stationed in King's Landing. Ilin is taken by Jamie to River Run. On the journey, Ilin and Jamie begin sparring practice. And Ilin proves to be the perfect partner in this regard, because of his permanent silence, so Jamie can kind of make his fumbles and mistakes without ruining his street cred. And he knows Ilin will not mutter a word or seek to humiliate him. But there's some big problems with this theory, Lady Gwen. Well, you know, the biggest problem is that he's still at River Run after the after the group leave. As many as there's two or three days afterwards, he's out with Jamie, training with Jamie, and then he's never mentioned again. But I have to say that I, I think that Ilan Payne going to Casterly Rock would not make sense. And he's certainly leaving River Run to kind of hurry up and catch up with the, the group wouldn't make sense. He's the King's Justice. His place is in King's Landing. He's been a part of Jamie's tale since they left King's Landing. And Jamie goes off to Raventree. Whether Ilan Payne accompanies him on that journey or not, it's it's not specifically stated. It just says he has his tale with him. So he could be there or he could have stayed behind at River Run. But the fact is he was not definitely not with the group that headed west with Forley Prester. And by some days he was he was behind still at River Run. So uh sadly I think we have to let go of the Ilan Payne theory. Yeah, as interesting as an Ilan Payne chapter would be and all, all that he knows, I think it's officially debunked. It would take something quite extraordinary to have him in the right place at the right time. So why don't we move on to someone that I think all of us agree is a fairly strong candidate at the least, and that is our man Forley Prester. As we heard, Forley Prester is in charge of the party. He wears a surcoat with a bull design and horns on his helmet, so look out for that. Jamie thinks he looks like an innkeeper, so a kind of plain looking man. He is a trusted Lannister man, enough to lead troops and this party. He is told to kill Edmure and Jane if they try and escape. Another thing you should really pay attention to there, which could be pertinent information. And here's an interesting quote from his conversation with Jamie. 
Scouts and outriders will screen our march and will fortify our camps by night. I have picked ten men to stay with Tully day and night. My best longbowman. If he should ride so much as a foot off the road, they will loose so many shafts at him that his own mother would take him for a goose. Lady Gwyn. Well, Forley Prester is definitely my pick. He's always been my pick. You know, he, he'd be a great person to be the point of view. I think he would fall kind of in the same category of point of views as Crescent, as, you know, the kind of loyal retainer trying to do the right thing, but suddenly faced with something completely unexplainable or possibly supernatural. Will, I think, falls into that category as well, although he's not really a, a retainer, but, you know, he's a loyal member of the Night's Watch kind of doing the same thing, you know, just out there trying to do his job and do everything right that's expected of him. And then suddenly being in this bizarre situation, uh, I think it is pertinent that he seems quite bemused by the notion that Jane, who he calls Gawain's girl, you know, I, I think he knows her father. So he just, just can't really countenance the, the idea that she might try to escape. So I wonder if his maybe unconscious urge to trust Jane might prove to be his undoing. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think he's my pick as well, because every prologue we've seen so far, they've had a, a small internal mission and he kind of fits that description best of these people that we know are there. That doesn't mean that other characters we know are there won't have one that we just don't know about yet, but that's the one that's most obvious to us. I think it'd be really fascinating to see this chapter through the eyes of someone, like I said earlier, who's trying, who's got a plan and is trying to keep it together and fails in probably a quite chaotic way. And, uh, you know, there can be a lot of moral dilemmas there, whether he has to do, uh, whether he has to shoot Ed Muir and, and Jane, whether he kind of cracks and thinks, no, I can't do that. And now I'm going to try and protect them and go against orders. And there's all those kind of oath themes in there. And I, I just don't think George can resist writing a line where someone says something so confidently and not have it kind of come back and bite them. I think that's just George all over there. So I could definitely see that happening. Okay, so why don't we talk about another candidate? Sybil Spicer. Mother of Jane Westerling, noted for being Maggie the Frog's granddaughter. So it's almost a nice bit of trivia there. <laughs> Strange bit of information. She was ultimately complicit in the death of Rob Stark, a fact she confesses to Jamie. She betrayed the North in order to gain political favours, but perhaps now harbours some regrets. And I just wanted to point out, as as an observation I made, that if it was Sybil, it would be the first female point of view in a prologue, which I only realised like yesterday. But anyway, Joe, what do you think of Sybil's status as a POV? Yeah, she'd probably be my silver medalist, another strong candidate, my second choice. I'd really like to have a female prologue POV. I uh, if people over on the Isle of Faces we've been talking about the occurrence of female chapters and that did come up that we haven't had a, a prologue POV yet so that'd definitely be interesting she's another mother character which I always enjoy this is obviously quite a different approach to motherhood than most of the ones we've seen before um, and she does fit into that kind of Chet Varamir role of someone that we already know and definitely do not like so that would be 
quite a way to open the book. We open it up, our blood starts boiling immediately because we hate Sybil for all she's done to Jane and to to Rob and everyone else extended. Um, so I think we'd uh, initially be chomping at the bit to see her get her comeuppance and think, yeah, she's a POV, she's going to die. This is great, I can't wait for it. And again, it's that same thing like I said before. We want it, we want it. Then we see it happen and we think, oh, I probably shouldn't have wanted that because now this poor woman's being torn about by wolves or attacked by multiple parties or whatever it might be. So I would think that could be a, a really strong candidate. And like I say, in terms of people having a mission and having an internal um, mini plot almost within a prologue chapter, she could definitely be someone like that because you can bet she's scheming of some way to get uh, what she wanted out of the Lannisters or get out of this deal somehow. So yeah, she'd have a strong vote for me. Excellent. And there's also her husband, Gar. Is that how you say it? Garwin. Garwin Westling. I've never said it out loud before. And he's the head of his house. And he was taken prisoner by Jason Malister and was captive when Rob Stark stormed the crag, his family seat, while his wife conspired with Tywin regarding Rob's betray- betrayal. Garwin was set free due to the Rob Jane marriage. But in a difference to his wife, he's really considered honourable and doesn't seem to have partaken in much of Sybil's scheming. So I was wondering if he could perhaps be a more sympathetic POV that, you know, doesn't really deserve any of this. Perhaps he does. That's for you to decide. But if he wasn't complicit in what his wife is, then the question's being asked of us. Uh, Why don't we move on to Edmure? Now, this might be a long shot. Edmure Tully is the brother of Catelyn Tully and is the original heir to Riverrun. His marriage to Rosalind Frey was marred by the treacherous events of the Red Wedding. Who can forget that? He's been captive ever since. At Riverrun, he's forced to stand every day with a noose around his neck in an attempt to make the Blackfish concede until he escapes. Edmure is sent with Forley Prester's armed escort as a permanent Lannister hostage. Permanent, guys. If he is allowed to make it west, it might then be impossible to recover him, underlining the importance of this supposed mission, right? So Lannisters would rather see him dead than put put a foot into freedom. What do you think, Joe? Could... Edmure will be a surprise POV. Uh, I sure hope not, because I'm a big fan of Edmure. I love me some Edmure. Uh, I, I understand his flaws, but I, I like him myself. I think the biggest chance against him being the POV is I wonder if George would dare to kill him off in this manner in a prologue POV, because that would pretty, be a, that'd pretty much be it for the Tullys then, unless Brynden is suddenly going to do a big lifestyle change. And that would be the first great family to actually go. It's not like the show where pretty much all of them are just completely wiped out. The closer to be um, Robert Aaron, but we know there's kind of subsets of Aaron through the veil, so it's not quite the same. We don't get that sense of the Tullys. It seems to just be this family. And like I say, they'd be gone. So to be fair, I don't see us getting through this series with all the same nine-ish great families being the same ones in power. So some of them have got to go sometime. And the Riverlands are the most used to switching rulers. They've only been around for 300 years. Riverrun's only been the the ruling castle for 300 years, which is the blink of an eye in Westerosi history. So I could see that happening, but I hope it's not. Excellent. 
Okay, I just want to brush through a few other ideas that we have. I don't think we've got time to critique them one by one. But the the BWB, I mean, we're thinking about this, that we're going to see it through the eyes of the Lannister kind of caravan, but it could be through the eyes of the BWB kind of stalking. They could be stalking them and they could come upon them and attack them and we could see what happens to Edmure and Jane through the BWB's eyes. And that could be, you know, a large number of people as possibilities there. One wild card that Lady Gwyn likes is Reynold Westerling because she's never been convinced that Reynold's alive. Dead. He is alive. He's not dead. <laughs> but it would be a shame for him to be the prologue character because he'd go from being not dead to being really dead. And that would be just too bad. <laughs> 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 and there's always the chance that it could be a nobody, you know, someone that we're not haven't been privy to before, so, some uh, other character who George has, you know, maybe name dropped or not even name dropped because that has happened in the prologues before. We don't always know them. Okay, so that was our kind of POV rundown. Let's move on. We have had five prologue pov so far and when considering them side by side certain patterns emerge it's good to note that george is certainly not bound to upkeep these supposed patterns but we can wonder as kind of fans and theorists if there's a chance that they might be repeated so the first thing is that I think all the prologues have been new settings, right, Lady Gwen? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so, you know, this could be a sort of a new setting, I mean, in, in that it's further west. It's maybe our first glimpse of a place that's been often mentioned but never seen, that area around the Golden Tooth, uh, which, you know, has come up so many times throughout the course of the War of the Five Kings. So, you know. We get we maybe we finally get to see that and really understand you know what it was like or why it's important. Okay, and being bestowed with the prologue POV mantle is almost a kiss of death, given that POVs seem to either die in their prologue or soon after. Do we imagine the POV will die in the Winds of Winter prologue, and is that something? We should expect from the first page, like we open the book, finally in our hands, we realise who the POV is. And then our first thought is, well, you know, you've got 20 pages left. R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I would say yes, 99.9% of of my brain says yes. But you get George's clarification regarding Jane uh, being not the not the... POV character, but just in the prologue, that indicates that he knows we're on to this. So could he mix it up? I mean, I don't think he would do that, honestly. I, I, in fact, I'm 100% sure he wouldn't do that just for the sake of confounding fans. But he is welcome to break that pattern at any point if it works for the narrative. So, you know, who knows? There is a percentage of a chance that uh, that's not the way it works out. Okay, and another kind of pattern that's emerged in a game of thrones we get to see the magical others then in a clash of kings we saw melisandre swallowing poison in a magical way 
In the Storm of Swords, there were more magical others. And in the Feast for Crows, we saw glass candles and glamours. And finally, in Dance, we witnessed magical warging and second life. So magic is evident in every prologue. Perhaps George likes to give us this kind of exposition in these chapters where he can. Patron Paul H. wonders if magic will be involved in this prologue. And I'm going to say that Paul H. said about Nymeria's wolf pack, which is warging. So that's a really good point, Paul. And we're going to come back to the wolf pack a bit later. Because I is magically in a wolf from across the narrow sea. But what what about Stoneheart, Lady Gwyn? What was the chances of some Stoneheart? You know, I mean, it, it certainly could be. The, the timeline seems to allow for it. She's not new to us, but she would definitely be new to the characters in, in this chapter. I mean, the rumors of the existence of the Hangwoman are still quite sparse. Beyond the Brotherhood, no one has connected that character with the Revenant, Catelyn Stark. No one even, you know, there's no hint that she's actually some kind of undead creature. She's just this kind of mysterious woman that might be, rumors has it, maybe took over from Beric or, you know, she's around doing things. So certainly it, it would be news to all of the people in the story if uh, all of a sudden undead Catelyn Stark descended upon them. <laughs> Quite the effect on the battle morale as well. If you'd see a, a, a woman you've already killed start walking towards you, that might be quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, with those yeah. red tears, you'd be scared, man, wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly. Drop <laughs> my sword, I'm off. Oh, okay, I want to conclude today by considering what wild cards could affect the story. So, George... Wild cards? Did you say wild cards? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was promoting his his main book series, Wild Cards. I thought we were talking about A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> so, the wild cards in the story, George never veers too far away from tragedy. It's like the central archetype of many of these plot lines in his, in his saga. We're told that Forley Prester must kill Jane and Edmure rather than let them escape. Does this sound a bit ominous, guys? If there's a large ambush, it will be difficult to separate the foe from the hostages and help the hostages escape, right? Being surrounded with so many guards who seems one purpose is to kill them if they try and escape. So listener Yogi wonders if the ambush could lead to the deaths of either or both of Jane and Edmure. Lady Gwyn. Well, in my opinion, the swiftness of George correcting the record where he said, I didn't say she was the prologue character. I said she was in the prologue kind of indicates, you know, that she will live. I, I don't think... If he wanted to leave that ambiguous, I don't think he would have so quickly jumped on re-answering a question that he had already sort of given an answer to. So don't forget that the context of the original statement in in the panel that he was sitting on was talking about the differences between Talisa, Rob's show wife, and Jane. So I think that George was quite keen to emphasize that Jane is still alive. 
And also, he did not want us to come away with the impression that she was still alive, only to be killed off in the first chapter of The Winds of Winter. So he seems to me like he has some plans for her. As for Edbjorn, I don't know. What do you guys, I mean, you guys think, we hope that it's, you know, not bad news for Edmure, right? Well, I like Joe's point earlier that, you know, things could go awry, right, Joe? Yeah, I think chaos is almost guaranteed, whether it's the Brotherhood, whether it's Brynden, whether George is even cute enough to have them both attack at the same time. I don't think he will, but they could. Whether wolves show up, I think something's going to go wrong. And I'd be very surprised if both of them gout unscathed at least something's going to go wrong we might have an injury we might just have i mean jane doesn't like wolves already so if she sees a huge pack of them then she's really going to have her nerves frayed um just seeing a bad slaughter whatever um yeah like i said already it's not going to be a happy chapter so i don't think things are going to go as edmure and jane would want the day to go yes so maybe it's going to be a roller coaster maybe we'll be pumping our fists like as we were when Catelyn wanted to arrest Tyrion we were all like this and then uh, later down the line we're kind of looking back like no I never pumped my fist <laughs> and a big war happened and we all... <laughs> <laughs> like, oh maybe that wasn't so <laughs> okay so George said we'll see Casterly Rock at some point and he wasn't just talking about the Winds of Winter he just meant in the some point in the saga so does this information tell us anything about how the prologue could go? Patron Aegon VI wonders if The Rock could feature in the prologue. What do you think, Joe? Uh, I would say no, to be honest. I would lean more towards no, because they would have to be so deep in Westerland's territory by then that an ambush would be a really, really bad idea. Um, they would have had to get ahead of them by quite some margin, survive in enemy territory for all this time, and then get back out of it. There's no real point in, ki- in freeing Edmure and then still having 100 miles to go just to get him out of enemy territory. Um, so I would lean towards no myself. Maybe we get a, a kind of, you see it on the horizon and then something happens, but I think the likelihood is, is pretty low myself. Okay, so what about Jamie and Brienne? Because they've been captured by the BWB, as we know. Brienne said that she'd swear her sword, right? So the BWB want them to do something with this sword. Could Jamie and or Brienne be involved in this potential ambush, Lady Gwyn? No, I think whatever they're going to do or whatever happens with Jamie and Brienne, which is the thing that I most want to know about, uh, it probably isn't this. So I accepted that I'm not going to find out in the prologue because they're they're at least a week or more, probably more, behind the the Prester party when they meet at Penny Tree. I mean, you, if you read that last Jamie chapter in Feast days go by it's the next day and the next day and the next day you can count off the days and it's many days and then he goes to raven tree um so and then plus however long that happens so a week maybe two weeks i just don't see how they could be involved in this ambush okay so they might not be involved in this attack but there might be another attack on river run in the winds of winter on a larger scale right so are the two things linked in your mind, Lady Gwen? And could the BWB be involved in both? 
Um, yes. I mean, I, I see that there's going to be some smaller things that happen early in the winds of winter that ultimately are this side retrieving all of their captives before the next big offensive, uh, which would be, you know, the Red Wedding 2.0 that that has been predicted. You've got these captives going west, which I think have to be retrieved. And then uh, don't forget that the Red Wedding captives were ordered by Jamie Lannister to be sent to King's Landing. Uh, the phrase kind of, you know, they stomped their feet a little bit, but they're probably going to go back and send them send them south. And I have no doubt that, uh, you know, being phrased, they'll screw that up and all those guys will be rescued. So really what this is about for, in, in terms of revenge, is probably reducing the risk uh, that you have captives that can be used as leverage or that can be executed because some sort of revenge was was taken uh, that might not work out exactly the way they are hoping or that they want it to, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, wow, that is a great thought that this prologue chapter is merely groundwork for something far larger and maybe far more horrific. I think there might be a slight irony because, it, like you say, Jamie gives that order, and so if the captives are out of the out of the twins and away from Riverrun, it might just open the door a bit. Oh, now we can actually go for it. And like we've said, this one could go wrong. So if Lady Stoneheart hears, "Hey, we tried to free your brother, but they actually just shot him rather than let us have him," then she might be thinking, "Well." god damn it right fine all bets are off then let's just storm the place let's not even care who's in there let's go proper uh to the to the max now if you're going to act that way so this though you say uh Yobor, this could definitely be groundwork or motivation for stoneheart just being even worse than she intended to be wow i'll drink it in <laughs> so the final point that i want to address is that we know there's a Chekhov's wolf pack roaming the Riverlands, led by Aya's Nymeria, and she's kind of having these long-distance dreams about it. Could the wolves involve themselves in this prologue situation? And if so, what are your thoughts on some of the possibilities of them appearing? And you know, what kind of function are they going to serve? Lady Gwyn. Well, first of all, you got Arya has these chapters in Bravos where she wargs Nymeria in her dreams pretty much every night from from the way she's she thinks about it. But these take place in tandem with Jamie's chapters, Jamie's feast chapters. So you get a, a chapter where she mentions having dreamed of snow in the Riverlands. So my initial thought is probably not. Uh, they're, they're not instrumental because. In that case, we might have seen it through Arya's eyes because the snow in the Riverlands happens in Jamie's final feast chapter uh, once this party has left several days earlier. So incidentally, that dream where she sees snow seems to involve a shepherd and his flock. So it, that's, you know, something sort of unrelated, something minor. But, uh, you know, she like I said, she does dream about or, or, or kind of dream in... She's warging Nymeria in her dreams every night. So unreliable narrator. I, you don't know that, that she could have dreamed something that she doesn't 
later think about and we we don't get the details because even though she's doing this pretty much every night we really only get the details of what she dreams about once or twice so you know with, as far as what the possibilities are if if that's the case i mean imagine a, a wolf attack either before during or after that that choke point ambush i mean it would just add to chaos and it would be, you know, something that Joe referenced earlier, like, you know, <laughs> just to sort of like many things happening at once that weren't all planned to, to, to happen and things kind of going, um, do, do wolves know the difference between friend and foe? I don't know. <laughs> but Joe, you have some thoughts on wolves, I think. <laughs> I, I have many, many thoughts on wolves, but I will restrain myself and not, not take up another half an hour of your time. This is my, where I fall down for theory making and theory crafting like you're so good at is because I I run into something that's a logical stop point and I just kind of move around it for what I want to happen, which is definitely the wolves. I want the wolves to be here and I, I hope they turn up, even though I will obviously not like it when, when they actually get down to business. But I just think they make too much sense for this prologue in, in terms of the theme and how previous prologues are structured. We already said about the magical element often just seeping in in the last few pages in past prologues, so that makes sense. And I think it hits brilliantly on that earlier idea we talked about with George making a point about glorified vengeance because we all love Nymeria and the idea of a great big wolf pack running around and eating Lannisters, we'd all sign up for that. That sounds right up our, uh, um, up our street. But then if it all goes wrong and it's chaotic and then they're stampeding and then they're eating everyone, like you say, instead of who they're supposed to be eating. And um, I didn't I didn't even look at this in terms of Aya being present or walking or controlling or whatever. I just wolves get hungry and there's a lot of men there and we already know they're attacking bigger bigger and bigger parties so that could be part of it but i think where it fits in most and the the idea like of it best is this magic um is a sword of our hilt type thing that i think is going to be another huge part of wins as daenerys progresses with the dragons and euron starts blowing horns and raising krakens and then there's big wolves everywhere and I just think it fits in so well with what we might see in terms of Aya, especially in terms of revenge and it not looking like we had hoped and it looking darker. So I think that that really mirrors here with Nymeria and the wolves. And I think it, you can really apply it to Aya and what she might be getting up to in wins. And we already worry about Bran and his warging. We don't know what Rickon's going to look like. Sansa's being mentored by Peter Baelish, so she's not going to come out morally clean. There's no chance. Um, I think that would be a big point of the overall story from George is that this family that we started with and they were all children that we love so much, I think they're going to all play a big part in saving the world or saving humanity or whatever you want to call it, but I don't think they're going to get away morally clean. Like I say, I don't, it's going to cost them something. I think this is a really good way to show that of this thing that we love or oh, the cute little wolf puppy actually being this uncontrollable force of nature that we're not really supposed to have and it uh yeah messing everything up just like dragons yeah precisely and it fits with the older uh, time for wolves yeah. discarded title because yeah. people thought that meant oh good the starts are coming back and i always thought that might actually be a dark yeah. message than you think <laughs> great so, Joe, Sir Buckley, thanks for coming on the show today. You've been a great guest. Thanks for having me. I want you to do two things. I want you to tell us about yeah. your podcast 
And then I want you to tell us and show us, hopefully, your <laughs> Westerosi-themed book that you've authored, which yeah. is very impressive. Go ahead. I thought you were going to ask me to sing. I was going about to log off. <laughs> <laughs> that would please some people, but we, we won't have to put you on that. I don't far. think my mic can handle that. Uh, yeah, the podcast, Dial of Faces, um, we are kind of a sister podcast to uh, a History of Westeros as they do their Valoridis projects. We do our Scraps and Scrolls episodes we pick up everything uh, that Aziz doesn't have to get have time to get to which is actually a surprising amount I mean I still leave stuff on the cutting room floor as well so if anyone wants to pick up a third podcast then they're welcome to uh, we could probably get four or five going the amount of stuff we get from these books and yeah there is a, a book behind me somewhere it's a bit of a chunky one Great Castles of Westeros there it is it does exist quite large um, and yeah like you say it is basically what the title says is a guide to all the great castles of Westeros, all the big ones. And that's, I guess it must have had its six month birthday recently, somewhere near that. And uh, it seems to be quite popular. So thanks for shouting that out. I mainly use it to weigh down my Dreamcast lid because it comes up if I don't put anything on. It's quite quite good for that. So so where would one purchase this Castles of Westeros book? It's on the old Amazon. You can find it if you search the title or my name. It will come up. I'm sure it's on my Twitter somewhere. I normally put it put a link somewhere over. Might be on your Twitter. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. Which is at Sir Buckley. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry, I didn't have a banner prepared because oh, we had a power outage prior no right prior to this and I got a little discombobulated with <laughs> our preparation so anyways we did not have a power outage during which is what really matters so thank you to the storm god for uh for really hanging off holding off there <laughs> we got through it and uh this was this was a great discussion possibly uh maybe record discussion for our for our streams of winter, we managed to get our producer to give us a little extra time, which was good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Joe, for being here. Next week, I want to tell you guys, actually, next week is the 4th of July here. It's a national holiday. We will be taking that off. But also, we had a previously planned family vacation, which runs from the 11th through the 18th. And we have plans with uh, family for those two weekends. So we're going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus for the next three weeks. We will, that is also lucky for all of you and, and for us going to give us the time to finish our next um, Winds of Winter Primer episode, episode three, which is what this topic that we've been talking about today is all relevant to our upcoming Winds of Winter Primer episode, which will be all about the Riverlands, Jamie, Brienne, Lady Stoneheart, the Brotherhood Without Banners. So hopefully by the time we come back in a few weeks, we will have that all finished. And our guest on that episode will be talking about Brienne with our friend Tana Ford, who is the Eisner and Hugo Award nominated artist, formerly host of the Westeros Whateverly podcast, Longtime member of the fandom. She's responsible for our profile pics. If you follow us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, we're really excited to welcome her to the podcast. So, yeah, back over to you, Yoke Boy. Lead us out. Yes, so a small break, but we'll be back July 25th for some more streams of winter. We're not going to stop until we've done all the POVs. Thanks for all your support. 
towards the live stream so far. And thanks to each and every one of our patrons who support us. If you want to support us as a patron too, please know we do have a Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives. So guys, thank you very much for watching and listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye for now.